It was D.T. Niles who said that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And if you are a spiritual beggar and you've discovered the bread of life, which not only sustains but also satisfies, you cannot keep quiet about it. There's something embedded in the gospel that compels us to go and tell. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 16. This morning I'll be reading verses 25 to 34. Acts chapter 16, I'll begin reading at verse 25, concluding at verse 34. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. I am thoroughly impressed with the early church. I'm not impressed with them because of some slick program or a fancy building or a delicious casserole recipe. No, the reason I'm impressed with the early church is because of their tenacity in telling the story. It seems that they were eager in evangelism. On every page in the book of Acts, you'll find the early church and they're taking it to the streets. They are eager to talk about Jesus. The case could be made that they have an evangelistic heart. And this morning, I want to give you three characteristics of such an evangelistic heart. First, an evangelistic heart always begins with a love for the Lord. It always begins with a love for the Lord. I've observed that we speak most eagerly about that which we love most passionately. We are eager to speak about those things that we passionately love. So we talk about our children and we brag about our grandchildren. We speak about that vacation. We speak about our favorite sports teams. We speak most eagerly about that which we love most passionately. Let me ask you, by a show of hands, how many grandparents are in the house today? Just raise your hand. That's great. Wonderful. Okay, you can put your hands down. Now, of those grandparents, how many of you, by a show of hands, how many of you had to go through a six-week class teaching you how to brag about your grandchildren? Raise your hand. Not a one. 
And the reason is because you speak most eagerly about that which you love most passionately. You and I turn to the pages of the book of Acts and the church is eager about evangelism, tenacious about telling the story. In fact, we bump into Paul and Silas in our passage. They're in jail. Do you know why they're incarcerated? Because they are passionate about Jesus. Earlier in the chapter of Acts, we are told that Paul had a, a vision of a man from Macedonia who said, come over and help us. And Paul made a strategic decision that day. He made a decision to follow a holy hunch. He went west to worship and to witness. You and I are beneficiaries of that decision. Had Paul not chosen to take the gospel westward, you and I may not be sitting here today. The gospel may not have gone to the far reaches of the Western world had it not been for this holy hunch, had it not been for this decision where Paul interpreted that vision as a sign from the Lord to say, go west and witness. A man from Macedonia. Macedonia was the northern province of present-day Greece. In those days, it was the thoroughfare of travel and commerce. It connected the east and the west. And Paul made a strategic decision. He said to Silas, to Timothy, to Dr. Luke, we're going westward. We're going to take the gospel to Macedonia. When they got there, they went to the leading city. It's called Philippi. And there, uh, Paul did as was his custom. He wanted to first speak to Jews and then to Gentiles. So he went outside the city gates to the outskirts of town of Philippi, and he was looking for a place of prayer. It wasn't uncommon in those days because the Jewish people had been scattered all over the planet that in most cities, most leading cities, most large cities, there would be a constitution of Jewish influence and a synagogue always would uh, pop up and it only needed about 10 men in order to start and found a Jewish synagogue. But when Paul went to Philippi and went outside the city gates, he couldn't even find 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi. He couldn't even find a significant influence, a small influence. He couldn't find enough individuals to form a Jewish synagogue. All he saw were a few women who had gathered to pray. At this moment, Paul must have thought to himself, did I get this vision correctly? Did I interpret it accurately? Did God really want me to come to Macedonia? Did God really want me to come here and to witness? I can't find any Jewish men. And in those days, no one would have uh, criticized Paul if he simply would have packed up his bags and went back home. Many people have tried to describe Paul as a male chauvinist. Nothing could be further from the truth. If Paul was a male chauvinist, then when he went to the leading city of Philippi, went outside the city gates, saw that there were no Jewish men there to share Christ with, only a, a band of women that had come to pray, if he was a male chauvinist, he would have immediately passed by them. Instead, he said, listen, I came to share the gospel with anybody, and these ladies need Jesus just as much as Jewish men need Jesus, and so he shared the gospel. And on that day, one lady accepted Christ. Her name was Lydia. 
Lydia accepted the Lord. Not just Lydia, but her entire household. Lydia was a woman of wealth. She was a dealer in purple cloth. And because it was purple, it was very expensive. That was expensive dye that had to be cast into the cloth. And so because of that, she had a lucrative business in Philippi. She opened her home to Paul, Silas, Timothy, Dr. Luke. Said, you can set up shop right here. We can have a house church. This can be our home headquarters. And so Paul shared the gospel with her. She responded. She responded in faith. That must have been affirming, don't you think? I mean, Paul goes on a missionary journey. He makes an important decision. He goes westward to share the gospel. And as he shares it, somebody responds in faith. The reason he shared the gospel was because he knew this woman was important. As I think about that, I'm reminded of the infamous quote by Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was a longtime pastor at Willow Creek Community Church located outside Chicago, Illinois. Bill Hybels said, you will never lock eyes with anyone who's not infinitely loved by the Lord. Think about that just for a moment. You never lock eyes with anyone who's not infinitely loved by the Lord. That changes how you look at people, doesn't it? The person at work, the person down the street, the person across town, the person across the world, the person that you read about, the person you see on the television screen, the person that you see on the big screen, every person that you lock eyes with, you find someone who is infinitely loved by the Lord. The reason Paul shared Christ with Lydia was because Lydia was loved by God. And if you and I are going to have an evangelistic heart, we've got to love the things that God loves. And God loves people. God loves people. He loves all kinds of people. He loves the entire cosmos. He loves all the world. And so we take the gospel to the streets and we have an evangelistic heart. Why? Because we love what God loves. And we will speak most eagerly about that which we love most passionately. And if we love Jesus and we know that Jesus loves people, then inevitably we will be willing to share that good news, to be tenacious about telling the story, eager in evangelism. It all starts with a love for the Lord. But secondly, the second characteristic is that you and I must have a lifestyle of worship. You and I have to have a lifestyle of worship. When we bump into Paul and Silas in our passage of Acts 16, they are unjustly incarcerated. The reason they're in jail is because on a particular day earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 16, Paul and Silas were going to a certain place to pray. Following them was a slave girl. Scripture says she was possessed by an evil spirit. That evil spirit enabled her to predict the future accurately. She made a great deal of money for her master's. She was following Paul and Silas all over town. This is what she said. These are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved. These guys are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way to be saved. Hey, these are servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way to be saved. Now, when you read that on the surface, it sounds like free publicity. And I don't know very many preachers who would shy away from free advertising, right? I mean, because you think to yourself, yes, Paul and Silas are servants of the Most High God. And yes, they are telling the people of Philippi how to be saved. But eventually, 
Paul goes postal on this woman. He turns around and he says to her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And immediately the evil spirit came out. When the evil spirit left, so did the prospect of her making money for her masters. You think to yourself as you read that, Paul, why did you do that? I mean, why did you do that? Is your tunic a little too tight? Did you wake up on the wrong side of the mat? Are you having a bad day, brother? Everybody has a bad day. Maybe this is Paul's very bad day. The answer to all of that is no. Because Paul understands what you and I do not understand. Philippi was a leading city in that Roman colony of the Roman Empire. For a Roman citizen to hear the phrase, these are servants of the Most High God, in their mentality, the Most High God was Zeus. So when they heard, these are men of the Most High God, automatically Paul knew what they were thinking. They were thinking that they were servants of Zeus. They're not servants of Zeus, they're servants of Yahweh. You and I know that, we understand that, but the Philippian mentality did not understand that. And the phrase that said, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling you the way to be saved. In those days of the first century, in the city of Philippi, in the Roman Empire, there were numerous ways to be saved. And in fact, there were numerous saviors. Caesar was believed to be a savior. And there was a thought process that said, all you have to do is follow the instruction of Caesar and do what your government tells you to do, and you will be saved, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So when the Philippian people on the street heard that these men are telling you the way to be saved, automatically Paul knows they're thinking these guys have come and they are ambassadors of Caesar. They're not ambassadors of Caesar. They're ambassadors of Christ. They're not telling you how to be saved in order to follow the instructions of Caesar. They're telling you to follow the instructions of Christ. And so because of that, Paul cannot afford to have a confusing gospel being proclaimed. So because of this, he spins around, says to this woman, I command you in the name of Jesus for that evil spirit to come out, and it did. This did not make the masters of this slave girl very happy. In fact, they were quite angry. They came and they seized Paul and Silas. They grabbed the Roman authorities. They said, we've got three strikes against these guys. Number one, they are Jews. We're not Jews, they're Jews. Number two, they are throwing this city into an uproar. And number three, they are advocating customs that are unlawful for us Roman citizens to follow. So because of these three strikes, they need to be flogged and thrown into prison. Do you really know what the slave owners were saying about Paul and Silas? They were saying about Paul and Silas, these guys are religious fanatics. Church, when was the last time that somebody in the culture called you a religious fanatic? When was the last time that somebody said of you, you are a crazy Christ person. You are a religious fanatic. No, most of us say, now I'm a Christian, 
but I just kind of want to go along and get along. I don't want to rock the boat. don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose any of my reputation. I don't want to make anybody turn their back on me. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So I'm a Christian, but I'm kind of one on the down low. I'm just kind of one of those individuals that I'm not going to make too much about it. I am a Christian, but I'm not real crazy about Christianity. I'm not a crazy Christian individual because I don't want to be a religious fanatic. Friends, I got to tell you a little secret. I, I want to be a religious fanatic. I want to be religiously fanatical about Christ. Most of us say, I don't want to be a religious fanatic because those are crazy people. Those are kind of crazy people. They, they, I'm not crazy, but they are. I don't want to be like that. Oh, my friends, I, I want to be crazy for Christ because you can't spell the word fanatic without first spelling the word fan. And I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of Jesus. And it is a lot easier to cool down a religious fanatic than it is to warm up a religious corpse. Y'all are going to get that in just a minute. But it's really a lot easier to cool down a religious fanatic than to have to warm up a religious corpse. And Paul and Silas are religious fanatics. At least the slave owner of that slave girl, he understands, yes, these guys are crazy for Christ and it's making a mess in this society and they're stirring up this city and they're asking us to do things that are unlawful to our customs as Roman citizens. The religious authorities did the only thing they could do. They flogged Paul and Silas. They threw them into prison. They assigned them a jailer. That Roman jailer placed them in stocks in the darkest dungeon. You've seen stocks before, haven't you? It's that wooden apparatus. It's got holes in it. Those holes could be used by the jailer to stretch the prisoner's limbs, arms, and legs in very creative positions. You could stretch the arms and the legs so far so that the prisoner would be in excruciating pain. This is the contraption that Paul and Silas are fastened to as they're locked in the stocks in the inner dungeon of the cell. It is dark. It is damp. It is not even fit for human life. And there they are. We are told that about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and praising God. At midnight, they're in pain, in excruciating pain. They've just been flogged a few hours earlier. They have open sores on their backs. And their legs are being stretched from this hole to that hole. And their arms are going from that hole up there to that hole. They're in excruciating pain. And in the midst of that pain, what are they doing? They are praying and they are praising the Lord. I I wonder, what are they praying about? I know who they're praying to. They're praying to the resurrected Christ. But what are they praying about? I bet they're praying for Lydia don't you think? Probably praying for Lydia's family. Oh, Lord, help them to be disciples that make a difference. I bet they're even praying for that slave girl who had been set free from that demon. They may be praying for that Roman jailer. You know, the one that just flogged them. 
Can you pray for the person that has just pained you? I bet Paul and Silas are praying for the person that inflicted pain upon them. I bet that Paul and Silas are probably praying for the other prisoners. I, I can well imagine that at some point in those few hours, uh, they ask the question, what is your name and why are you here? My name's Paul. My name's Silas. What's your name? What's, what's your name? And I think they're probably praying for the other prisoners by name. They're praising God. They're singing. They're singing in the midst of pain. It's one thing to praise God in pleasure. It's another thing to praise him in pain. It's one thing to praise God in the safe confines of your health. It's another thing to praise God in the stormy seas of disease. It's one thing to praise God when the refrigerator is full. It's another thing to praise God when the cupboard is empty. It's one thing to praise God when you're looking at your child in the cradle. It's another thing to praise God when you're looking at, the, at your child in a casket. It's one thing to praise the Lord when you've got extra money in the bank. It's another thing to praise the Lord when you've got more month than money. It's one thing to praise God when life is going well. It's another thing to praise God when your world is turned upside down. Paul and Silas have a lifestyle of worship and in that moment they are praising the Lord and they're praising the Lord at the strike of midnight and they're praising God with everything they have inside of them. Why? Because they love the Lord in good times and in bad. Scripture says that the others were listening to them. The other prisoners were listening to them. You do realize, Christian, that other people are watching you, don't you? They're watching. They're listening. They're taking inventory of how you handle a crisis. What do you do when the world puts you in stocks? How do you handle life when you're in the midst of disease and pain? How do you respond? Do you gripe? Do you bellyache? Do you grow bitter or do you praise the Lord even in the stocks? The other prisoners were listening to them. When I read that, I'm reminded of that book entitled The Church on the Other Side. It's written by Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren said that non-Christians will not want to become Christians unless there are credible Christians for them to observe. For the gospel must first be seen before it can be heard. Now, before I get any uh, corrective emails about how I'm not supposed to quote Brian McLaren, let me tell you that uh, I actually agree with the late, great Calvin Miller. Calvin Miller uh, approached Brian McLaren. He, he read a, another book of Brian McLaren called Generous Orthodoxy. It's a very popular book several years ago. And Calvin Miller went up to Brian McLaren and said, I've read your book, but it's not very generous, nor is it very orthodox. I agree. I agree. But I'd also say this. Even a blind hog can find an acorn every once in a while. And so there are times that Brian McLaren can actually stumble on something that's true. He can stumble on a nugget of truth. And I think he did that brilliantly in that book, The Church on the Other Side, when he makes the astute observation that non-Christians won't want to become Christians unless there are credible Christians for them to observe because the gospel must first be seen before it can be heard. I think he is exactly right. And I think that's what's being played out in Acts chapter 16. They are listening 
to what Paul and Silas are praying and praising. They're listening, they're watching, and they realize not only do these guys have a love for their Lord, but also they have a lifestyle of worship, even in the midst of pain. Suddenly, an earthquake struck that jailhouse. I don't know where it registered on the Richter scale, but I know it was strong enough to shake the jail to its foundation. The doors flew open. The chains of every prisoner fell off. I know that earthquake was big enough to wake up a sleeping Roman jailer. It jolted him out of his slumber. He looked and noticed that the doors were swinging wide open. He assumed the worst, the only thing that he could assume. He thought that all the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his own sword to take his own life. Why? Because he would rather take his life than have other people take his life because uh, his prisoners escaped under his watch. And so he's about to take his own life when Paul and Silas see this. And Paul says, sir, don't, don't. We are all still here. Don't harm yourself. When I read that, I realize that that earthquake was not sent so that Paul and Silas could be set free. That earthquake was sent so the Roman jailer could be set free. You know, sometimes earthquakes happen in your life and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the people around you, the people that you influence. Sometimes miracles happen in your life and it has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with the people that are around you that will see you, how you handle the prosperity of the miracle. Sometimes tragedy happens in your life and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with how other people will watch, how you handle the crisis that comes knocking on your door. Sometimes earthquakes come to you in a very symbolic way and it has nothing to do with you. This earthquake had nothing to do with Paul and Silas. It wasn't to get them out. It was to get the jailer in so that he would come in and ask the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? When was the last time that somebody asked you that question? Sir, what must I do to be saved? Madam, what must I do to be saved? Students, what must I do to be saved? Neighbor, what must I do to be saved? Coworker, what must I do to be saved? When was the last time, beloved, you were asked that question? You think to yourself, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question. I mean, that's like putting it right on a silver plate. That's like putting the ball right on the tee and just letting you hit it, you know? I mean, what must I do to be saved? I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. Could it be, my friends, that we've never been asked that question because we don't live life like Paul and Silas? We're not living a life of worship. The jailer had a nagging question. Who did he go to to get the answer? He did not go to the other prisoners. He went to the one that he had been watching. He went to the one that he had seen. He went to the one that was praising the Lord even in the midst of pain. If he has a nagging question, who's he gonna go to? He's gonna go to the person that he thinks has the answer. Maybe nobody comes to us because they don't think we really have the answer. And yet we do have the answer, don't we? That's a question you can say yes to. We do have the answer, don't we? 
And why is it that some people aren't running to us, many people aren't running to us saying, sir, madam, what must I do in order to be saved? Could it be because the watching world really doesn't think that we have the answer to their problem? The jailer went to Paul and Silas. And he went there, not going to the other prisoners, he went to Paul and Silas because he believed they actually had the answer to the question that was really itching him. What must I do to be saved? I'll give you a third characteristic. Not only must you have a love for the Lord, not only must you have a life of worship, but third and finally, on your lips must be the proclamation of the gospel. What must I do to be saved? The worst thing Paul and Silas could have said was, I don't know, but that is a good question. I don't have the foggiest idea. Let me go get my pastor. Let me go get my deacon. Let me go get another minister because they know how to be saved. I don't know. That's a good question, though. I'll give you that. But I don't really know the answer. That would have been a horrible way to answer. How do Paul and Silas answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. It's the same equation for anybody. The jailer and Mrs. Jailer. And Jailer Jr., everybody else in the family, it's the same equation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. In fact, it's the only equation that's ever worked. The only way that anybody is saved is by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, American or Iranian, it does not matter. God will Embrace anyone who comes and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe means that you trust and turn. You trust Jesus' Savior. You turn from your sin. You cannot say, I trust Jesus, but you have no intention of turning from sin. And you cannot truly turn from sin without trusting in Jesus. It's two sides of the same coin. There's got to be trusting and there's got to be turning. Both those things have to happen, and that is belief. We are placing our faith squarely upon the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Not just you, but anyone in your household. It's the same equation for anybody who wants to be saved. You read that, and you see that the jailer responds in faith. You know he responds in faith. He responds in faith because the word of the Lord was spoken to him. Paul and Silas, you read that next line. The word of the Lord was spoken to them. At some point, beloved, the gospel has to be proclaimed on our lips. I meet a lot of people who say, Pastor, I'm going to share the gospel in my walk. And when they see my walk, then they'll know about my talk. And when they see how I live, then they'll see who I love. And I understand that. I get that. It's got to be seen before it can be heard. But at some point, we've got to open our mouths and speak the gospel. We've got to open our mouths and speak the word of the Lord. You may say, oh, but I don't have that spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual gift. It is a spiritual privilege. It is a privilege for all those who trust in Jesus as Savior to go and proclaim and say, hey, I'm going to speak most eagerly about that which I love most passionately. So we've got to be able to say very fluidly, very easily, that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For if we confess with our mouth Jesus Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. What I just quoted for you were a few scriptures from the book of Romans. We've got to have the word of the Lord on our lips so that we can proclaim the gospel. You know the Roman soldier, that jailer, he, he, he responded because you can see it in his fruit. He bandaged their wounds. The wounds that uh, he inflicted, he bandaged those wounds. He opened up his house, practiced Near Eastern hospitality. He invited those guys in. He introduced his wife and his children. And Paul and Silas shared the gospel with them, and they believed, and they too were baptized. And the jailer was full of joy because he believed in Jesus, and his whole family were believers. I told you last week that wherever there's Jesus, there's joy. If Jesus is Lord of the life, there's joy in the life. If Jesus is Lord of the house, there's joy in the house. If Jesus is Lord of the city, there's joy in the city. If Jesus is Lord of the church, there's joy in the church. It's Jesus' joy. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 16. Because Paul and Silas had an evangelistic heart. They had a love for the Lord. They had a life of worship. And on their lips, they proclaimed the gospel. I don't think that the church at Philippi had any problem with soul winning. I don't think they had any problem with evangelism. You know why? Think about some of their founding members. Some of the founding members of First Baptist Church Philippi. Lydia and her family. The slave girl. The Roman jailer and his family. They didn't have to do any program. They probably had to do very little training. They just said, hey, get out there and tell somebody about Jesus. What has Jesus done in your life? How has he helped you? How has he healed you? How has he gotten you out of some things? How has he provided for you? What's he done with your sin? What did Jesus do in your life, in your marriage, with your sickness, with your family, with your prodigal? Just go out and tell somebody what Jesus did. I promise you, the church at Philippi had no problem when it came to soul winning. They were eager in evangelism, tenacious about telling the story. I want you to think with me. And imagine a family of five going on vacation. They uh, wanted to go to the state park and do some camping. The nightmare became a reality. The 14-year-old daughter named Tracy came up missing. The parents frantically searched for Tracy, could not find her. They called the authorities. They spoke to every television news station that would come by. They got the word out on the radio. Uh, people were giving up vacation time just to come and search for Tracy. You were driving to work one day. You heard on the radio this late-breaking news about how the 14-year-old girl named Tracy had come up missing. That really burdened your heart. I mean, you thought to yourself, I've got a 14-year-old daughter. I can't imagine if she was lost or abducted or kidnapped or something. I, I've got to go try and help find her. So you call the boss, you take a vacation day, you drive up to the state park, you follow all the signs that say uh, search and rescue headquarters. They got somebody out there helping you park the car. You get out of the car and to your surprise, 
you're just struck with a smell of hamburgers and hot dogs on the grill. You hear laughter in the campground. You walk up and people are just in their lawn chairs. Over there, there's a great little game of cornhole. And over there on the other uh, field, a pickup game of softballs broken out. You speak to the guy that helped you park your car. You say, hey, who's in charge of this thing? And they point you to some guy who's sitting at a picnic table playing cards with his buddies. You walk up to him and you say, hey, I, I'm here to help look for Tracy. And the man looks at you and says, I'm so glad you're here. You know, it's not by accident that you've come. We are delighted to have you here at our campground. You say, well, okay, that's great. That's wonderful. But I'm here to find Tracy. Oh, don't you worry about that, comes the reply. You just grab your hot dog. I want you to be comfortable. Pull up a chair. Get involved in cornhole or softball or come here, play cards with us. But just sit back. We want you to be comfortable. We want you to enjoy the sweet fellowship of the campground. You go, no, I'm not here for comfort. I'm not here to enjoy the fellowship of the campground. I'm here to find Tracy. Help me know where to go to find Tracy. And by this time, your blood pressure is boiling just a bit because you think to yourself how ludicrous it is that this guy's playing cards when Tracy is lost. He picks up on your frustration. He leans back and he says, oh, you're one of those. Listen, just so you'll know, we do go to the edge of camp periodically and we yell her name. Tracy! Tracy! But we've got a sneaking suspicion, and it's pretty much shared among most of us here, that if Tracy wanted to be found, she could be. After all, she knows where we are. We're right here. And if she wants to be found, she can come to us. At this point of me telling the story, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, that is the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. And you're right. It is ridiculous. It's just as ridiculous as most of our evangelistic efforts. We think that all of this, life, church, ministry, we think all of this is for us. We think it's for us to be comfortable, for all of our needs to be met. So we get involved and pull up a chair and play cornhole and softball. We grab a hot dog and we play cards and we just have a sweet fellowship one to the other. And all the while, Tracy is lost. And if push comes to shove, Probably far too many of us have the mentality, if Tracy really wanted to be saved, she could be. She knows where we are. We're the big church on Highway 31. If she really wanted to come in and get some Jesus, she could come on in. Friends, that is ridiculous. That is Ridiculous. Yet that's how most of us do evangelism. 
and we satisfy uh, the itch in our life because we say to ourselves and convince one another, hey, we occasionally go out and say, Tracy, Tracy, listen, we exist not for a sweet fellowship. We exist not for our own needs and wants to be met. We exist to find Tracy. We are here to make disciples with a global impact. And the way we make disciples is we've got to find lost people like Tracy so that she can have life everlasting, so that she can go out and tell others about the life-giving salvation that only Jesus can give. We need to find Tracy. And Tracy could be right across the street. She could be right around the world. She could be right under your nose. She could be in your house. She could be seated next to you. She could be at the gas station. She could be at the grocery store. I don't know where she is, but we, we've got to be tenacious about telling the story. We've got to take it to the streets, guys. We have got to be eager in evangelism. I promise you the church at Philippi had no issue with the who, what, where of their existence. They knew that because they were disciples, they were lifelong believing learners of Christ. So what are you learning? And because you're on mission with the Lord, where are you taking the gospel? Whether it's across the street or around the globe, it doesn't matter. But where are you taking the gospel? And who are you trying to reach? In other words, who is your Tracy? Who are you looking? for because it's a life and death situation this is grave this is eternal and the early church why I'm so impressed with them they were tenacious about telling the story why because they believed that the tomb was empty and it makes all the difference they actually believed that the tomb is empty and it prompted them and motivated them to go out and find Tracy. So I came this morning just to remind you that I serve a risen Savior and he's in the world today and I know that he is living whatever men may say. I, he, I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks to me a long life's narrow way. He lives, he lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. He lives to raise up a disciple within me. He lives to raise up a disciple within you. And when we take seriously evangelism and when we go out tenaciously and tell the story, Jesus will show up in the jailhouse. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, I think there could be a Tracy in the house today, somebody who needs to respond to Christ. And Lord, if that person is here, I pray that today, when the first note is sung, that individual, regardless of whether they're 14 or 84 years of age, that person will come down and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, for most of us, the chains that hold us are the chains of complacency and convenience. So please break those chains today. Help us not to have a ridiculous evangelistic story. But Father, help us to be disciples that make a global impact. Have your way in this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.